Hello, everyone. Today you have Jake and Seth and a guest by the name of Brad Perez hailing from the Ohio. Is it? Is that what it's just? Is it, is it even a state anymore? Is it just Ohio? It's just the Ohio. The Ohio. Okay. Yeah. That's giving me a look right now. Like I just insulted him. The well, I mean, it's another rye guy. Just, We're all rye guys, Jake. Been, Seth, you've never even been in a flyover state. Don't get out of here. Don't give me that <laughs> look. You. Coastal elite. Um, okay, where was I? I'm sorry. Ing- we're talking about the 2009 film *Inglorious Bastards* by Quentin Tarantino with our friend Brad Perez here today. Throwing it to you, Brad. Thoughts, feelings. Want to tell us about yourself? Fears, thoughts, emotions, dreams. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you guys for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I'm a big podcast listener. I've never, ever been on one, so please bear with me. Um, also, thanks for letting me pick a movie or two or suggest a movie or two because Inglorious Bastards is probably probably my favorite movie ever. <clears throat> so I believe I'll be in fisticuffs with Seth by the end of this because I know <laughs> he's going to be the bad cop. But, um, yeah, I my relationship with this movie is that... I saw it when it came out and like many other Tarantino movies, I like didn't know what I was getting into. I thought it was really cool, but I didn't really get it. And I needed to like digest it, get really excited to rewatch it and then rewatch it for me to like, for it to really sink in. Like this happened with once upon a time in Hollywood where I saw it the first time. And I mean, I had no idea that it was like about the Manson family murders. I had no idea that that was the thing. And so I didn't see that coming. That was a really weird thing to be like shocked by in the final scene. Um, but that's basically what happened with Inglorious Bastards. I mean, I didn't know it was going to be like super mega gory. I didn't know it was going to be like um, historical fiction or like kind of rewriting history. And so like when you see it for the first time, at least for me, like that was like kind of overwhelmed my reaction of it. Like I just remember thinking like, well, that was interesting, I guess kind of funny and like, but man, there were some incredible scenes. And then like a lot of the other movies, I'm like, the second it comes out, I can like rent it. I'm going to rent it or whatever. And so I did that and I was just in love with it. Uh, And yes, that movie so many times. I mean, I've watched this movie. I don't even know, probably like 30 times. Um, and I, we're not the whole thing 30 times. I probably watched the whole thing like 10, maybe 15. I've definitely watched that first scene and Operation Kino like 50 times. Um, the amount of times that like when I was living alone in Columbus, Ohio, and I would come home drunk and like have some food and like want to watch something for half an hour, I, I would just watch that, that was the first Matrix scene. For me. I, I hear you. Um, it's always in the background. It's your white noise. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, um, should I go into more detail about the movie right now, or let's throw it to Seth, Seth? Because uh, I just before you dive in, I'm interested to get a little nugget of what uh, Seth's thinking right now. I know, you know, it's a on my rewatch. Honestly, I liked it more than uh, my like original viewing of it in theaters. Um, I think on my initial watch of it, I was sort of like 
it's <laughs> Tarantino's a hard guy to parcel because it's like he always has his signature imprint on all of his works, and sometimes it's hard to like dissect that from the like really good filmmaking he's doing and the stuff that seems sort of just his uh, obsession or or his sort of like I don't want to say masturbatory, but like there's there's times where I think he does uh, he has directorial flourishes that are like purely his own and they don't need any of that like extra oomph to, to be like this is a Quentin Tarantino thing and then there are other times where he's obviously imprinting his sort of like thing into the movie and so it's like for me it's like really hard to to reckon with all that stuff at once um on my rewatch I I'll say this the the opening sequence and the bar sequence uh I think are just like extraordinary like the, I don't think any other director could do those sequences the way he does, and uh, to see to see him like kind of operate on that level is just like a lot of fun. And then there are other parts of the movie that you know it's just not it's just not at the same level. And so I think the movie totally is uneven. And um, especially, I would say also the European actors are acting at a much higher level than most of the American actors. Um, particularly the bastards, I sort of question a lot of the casting with some of those people, including Pitt and Eli Roth, and like the whole group kind of is like, it's a lot of, um, he's drawing a lot from the Dirty Dozen in that section of the movie, which is cool, and like I love the Dirty Dozen, and I love the feel of those movies, but to have that sort of be on a count counterbalance with like, this very intense story about a French girl, a French Jewish girl that lost her whole family and that whole setup with Waltz, it's like, tonally, it's a big shift. Well, I think it's, it seems like... Well, we'll, we'll get into it in a moment. We'll dive into all that fun stuff. So just to recap for everyone, uh, Seth is against the GIs and uh, refugees. Uh, he doesn't support them. Um, but before we dive in, uh, you guys pretty much touched on everything about this film. The one thing I kind of had coming away from this film is that the thing I love about it is like this to me feels, I don't want to say it's his, the essential Tarantino film, but it feels a quintessential him. And it's, I think I ripped this. This is an amalgamation. What, I'm allowed, but it's just like, it's like this movie is like a perverse yet like delightful mix of violence, humor, pop culture, and revenge, and it just feels like so Tarantino in like the weirdest way. I love it. I'm with you, Brad. I had to see it a few times. I wasn't expecting the rewrite for the historical fiction, so I didn't like that at first. But the more I saw it, I realized this is a revenge um, fantasy. And I, I look at it through the revenge fantasy lens. Um, but with that being said. I also think this is part of a larger Tarantino conversation. I'll re-ask this question again, but I was kind of sad. This felt like the la I really liked Once Upon a Time on Hollywood, but this was the last time Tarantino surprised me in a good way. And I, I wish he did a little bit more of, I wouldn't mind seeing another Inglourious Bastard. I, I didn't like Django. I did not like Hateful Eight. I liked um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that, that, I'm sorry, I'm getting off track here. That's a different question. So with that, I'm going to throw it to you, Brad. I know you're just chomping at the bit here to shove Seth's words in his face. So no, go ahead. <laughs> no, I thought it's interesting because the way you say it, it seems it's obviously an intentional choice to make the Americans super like kind of brash and arrogant and cocky and direct. And all of the like European characters are playing like verbal chess with each other. 
they're switching from one language to the other seamlessly. They make a point constantly of talking about language they're speaking and when they're going to shift and when they're going to talk in this, when they're going to talk in that. And whether it's like Fassbender's character, who's obviously British, but he can obviously speak German super well. Uh, all of the, you know, the French characters who can speak German and French and Christoph Waltz, who speaks four languages perfectly. Um, it's interesting the way that he casts the Americans as like, they can't be anything but direct. And they, they, on, they honestly sound kind of uneducated. I actually want to pick up on that, Brad, because I think you're right. And I think you're actually hitting, I think that was very much intentional. He could have, you look at who some of the people he was looking out to, Eli Roth is one of the top choices. He offered it to Adam Sandler, but he wanted Eli Roth as the bear joke. He wanted the guy from the office as Little Man. And also, like, to Brad's point, think about, just think about that. They're sending Jewish people who, especially in that time in Germany, are easily identified by Germans and Europeans. So, and the ones they cast in this film look very Jewish. So, and an Apache American to infiltrate in deep, they're presented as cowboys and more so than cowboys, they're presented as the bastards of the cowboys. These are the guys who you don't, you, like they're the worst of, the best of the worst, so to speak. And the one, I won't go too, too deep into it. I don't think he's trying to speak too much to World War II US strategy and everything. But the idea of, especially at Operation Kino, when they don't speak any Italian and they're going to pretend to be Italian and they don't look Italian and just that whole idea that they're going to have with American arrogance and exactly they're just going (laughs) to smile and to me that is what Land is laughing at when he when he meets them he just he's laughing at them and that scene we'll we'll go into that scene deeper later but I I think Brad's hitting on something here I think part of it is a and one more thing and I'll get off as soon as the idea of Americans kind of blundering forward in the military, it's not totally out of date step. And just that generally starting in the Civil War and in World War Two, and at the beginning of World War uh, World War One, the beginning of World War Two, there was a general like we'll overwhelm them in that America wasn't American didn't have the same precision tactics as Germany or some of the other European powers. They were going to overwhelm you with numbers and resources especially in the west with in japan we beat them in a series of battles where we lost tactically but strategically the japanese couldn't repair their losses and so over time we just overwhelmed them so again i don't think he's trying to read i'm reading too much into it here but at the same time i think brad is hitting on something that i You see the bastards, and it's like this could be an Eli Roth film. If, if I see a tit pop out, this is this could be an Eli Roth film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not only the way they talk, but the focus on manners and etiquette in every scene. The way that in that first scene, uh, Christoph Waltz is so demonstrative of, would it be okay if I sit down? Is it okay if I smoke my pipe? By all means, this is your house. You should do this. And then, like, later on in the scene, Operation Kino, when they're in the basement, and uh, the German officer 
is like, oh no, like I'm not actually not intruding unless the, 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 the lady says that I'm intruding. Do you say I'm like, there's like this weird focus on etiquette and manners, as well as this very elevated level of speech that only exists within the European characters because when like right. the bastards open their mouth, they just like say whatever's on their mind. They're not polished. I, I like that. But also part of that too, it's like the, and cause you get punched in the face. Like the American would just punch you in the face. It's like, I want you to leave. Right. Or I would say American, any of the bastards, the, any of those characters. Um, all right. All right. I think, uh, I think it's, I, what, it's, what, I think he's like he Tarantino is making a choice there and like he it does come across the right way where it's like the Americans are these brash guys and again it's like he's drawing from the dirty dozen or even like a lot of the John Wayne stuff where it's like it's this brash guy that'll tell you to go fuck yourself like he's not gonna like play games with you or something he and it's like I think it's it's fine to do that it's just weird to me I mean I get that Tarantino's this guy that melds cultures and pop culture and 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 inside of movies and stuff but it's like when you're actually watching the movie, I just think it's like it's too much of a juxtaposition to go from these guys who are scalping people and beating people up with bats back to this like really intense thing with this French girl with the movie theater and like Daniel Bruhl is trying to court her even though he's like the most vicious sniper in the German army or something. It's just, it just feels like two different movies that are two. I don't even know why they're on the same. Like he could have made just two different movies almost. I think, and it's also. I guess one of the one of the only dis or like the plot wise one of the dissatisfying things to me is that like that setup with Waltz and killing that family is so good, but then at the end of the movie it's kind of like the outcome with Waltz is that whole game he plays with Pitt and uh, and like getting himself uh, back to America and stuff, but then Pitt ends up branding him with the Nazi symbol, and it's like what that that character has to come back to to that girl and like they need to have a confrontation at the end it's like almost like a Sergio Leone movie at that point where it's like you can't have that set up and then not have that girl confront that guy at the end of the movie and, and like that's her whole family that he killed and to have it just kind of be that thing with Pitt where he brands him I don't know I don't know what that means narratively I think that's it's odd that he went that way it's like the bastards and that girl kind of switch uh like objectives almost and it's like she ends up dealing with she burns down the movie theater that they were supposed to blow up and they end up dealing with waltz basically mm-hmm. i think well, it's pretty yeah i think that's pretty fair I'll, I'll let you answer that brad though i'm gonna i'm gonna retreat back into my hosting corner here right now get out of the way well i was wondering um i because one of the one of the segments is kind of questions about the movie i had a question which i think might tie to this which is I'm interested in how you guys read this scene. The scene where they go to the French restaurant and they have the strudel and he gets that sit down with her and like you hear like the drums, boom, 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 boom. And like you see her like all the emotions she's showing on her face. She hates him. She's terrified. She's curious. Does Does he recognize me? And watching her get through that scene it's very similar to like the viewer getting through that scene. You're like tensed up your shoulders and she looks, there's that moment where Christoph Waltz orders a milk for her. Yeah. And when I watched that the first time, my heart sank, like that was terrifying to me. Um, but then obviously he doesn't do anything to her and he doesn't stop it, but he's also proven that he's an incredible 
detective and that his deductive reasoning is incredible. I guess what I'm wondering is what did, what did you guys think happened in that scene? Do you think that he recognized her and he's just toying with her and letting her go because he knows what he wants to do in the end with selling out the Nazi high guard? Or is that just uh, random that he orders her a milk? I'll let Seth go first. Unless you want me to. <laughs> that's a good question. I think that's a great, it's definitely up for interpretation inside the movie. I don't think you're really going to know one way or the other. The milk definitely, well, I, on first watch, I also thought that was a signifier that he did recognize her. It's not clear to me that he knows his plan. It's also not clear to me that he would know that Hitler is like going to that thing yet. I'm not sure, but um, I don't know. I think it's a stretch to, to think that Waltz has that all worked out or even knows that the bastards are going to like come with bombs and stuff like that. So and I would guess he's probably suspicious of the... I would guess... I actually, I mean, gun to my head, I'm going to say he, he does recognize her because of the milk thing. I, I'm not sure why he wouldn't, like, pursue it immediately. Maybe he's just, like, a sadistic guy that had uh, more uh, disgusting plans in mind or something. <laughs> I think it's, I've kind of gone back and forth on it. I didn't pick up on that at first. Later on, I'd heard that. I, I think it is more so a wink from Tarantino to the audience. Uh to, to have that effect on people like you guys who are paying attention because I don't see Landa's character. He, one, he never saw her. He only saw her through the board and running away. So it's not like he would actually know it's her. And the other, just more so, I, I, I don't think we see it in his character to let anyone go without it benefiting him. And I just, didn't see I don't see that now the counter now to counter my own argument and to support yours Brad it could be that he suspected her and didn't want to get in trouble because Solar is this famous war hero with a movie coming out now he could get he could be kind of shoot the messenger type thing if he goes to Goebbels and says hey guess what this guy is working with the French resistance and then the last thing I'll say is at this point, during the German occupation, everyone in France was part of the French resistance. That's like an exaggeration, but the chances probably like one out of five, one out of three people he met who were French were probably a spy or wanted to kill him. So it, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't think it is. Although with that being said, I think there's enough to kind of what Seth said. I think there's enough sprinkled where you can, uh, it can get be left to the individual or for the watcher. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like you can make your own interpretation. My interpretation, especially because there's that moment at the end of that scene where he goes, I had another question. You know what? I can't remember it. And then he lets her go. Oh, right. Because yeah. of that and the fact that, I don't know, like you said, Seth, did he have more sadistic plans for her? It seems <laughs> like he's just operating in a completely different realm. Like, yeah. he knows what his job is, but also, he could have, they had a car there. If they wanted to chase Shoshana down, they could have done that when she ran away. You know, they had a car, they had guns. It seems like he gets some kind of enjoyment out of the chase. Yeah, I wondered uh, that, too, so why they didn't that. chase her at that moment. I was like, why did they just let her go? It seemed like they had plenty, I mean, they had a car. Yeah, it's like, why didn't they chase her down? So my interpretation is that he 
he knew he didn't know his plan maybe yet, but he knew and he just wanted to let her know, I've got you under my thumb. I'm letting you go for now, but I'm here like watching you. That's my thought. That could work. And the, the, uh, one other thing to keep in mind too, and again, I'm probably reading too much into it, is ever since, like starting in the late 30s, early 40s, a lot of German officers thought they were going to lose the war. And after 1942, they all knew they were going to lose the war. Mm-hmm. So the idea that he might want to have someone in the French resistance or under his thumb, that I think that works. So yeah, I'm, you're kind of talking me into it a little bit more, Brad. So <laughs> I'm officially in the middle. I'm splitting the difference. I'm undecided. Do we, we're kind of getting questions already. And I feel like I have a few here that I kind of like to ask before we dive in. I was going to, and then assuming at the end, we can kind of go through likes, dislikes. Now, do we feel ready for questions, guys? Or is there anything else? Seth, do you think you got something on your mind? You want to I, I got one minor, one tidbit I wanted to throw in. I read that Gene Reno was supposed to play that French father in the beginning. And I just feel like that's a huge missed opportunity. I wish Gene Reno would have done that. What's so funny is I thought Mr. Lapidite looked like Gene. I think it was like a football version of him when I first. The similarity stuck out to me. Uh, They they should have had him. He would have been incredible with Waltz. Yeah, casting. There's a few things casting wise. Normally, I think Tarantino is a great a master of casting. Honestly, like there's a few. I mean, he's brought actors back from the dead several times, but uh, this one there's a few. I think he missed on, but again, I like, I think Fassbender, Bruhl, and Waltz are all exceptional. Even Diane Kruger, I think, is very good in this, too. Yeah, and I would say the performance by Shoshana yeah. is incredible. The way that she's doing multiple things in every scene that she's in, she's feeling two ways. Like, the way that she shows a disgust for uh, Frederick Zoller's character, but then also, like, an interest, because... The guys, he, he comes across as innocent and pushy, and obviously she's not interested in him the way she, the way that he is in her. But she is interested in his story because he's obviously famous. All these people keep coming up to him, so I feel like she just in every scene she's like doing a couple things with all of her expressions. She doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but I feel like she's incredible in it as well. Yeah, she definitely almost every single one of her scenes she has a she has like a. Uh, <laughs> she okay. has a, an emotion that's her exterior and then she has like a subconscious emotion and she's always portraying both at the same time and it's just a lot of very difficult technical acting for an actress in all those scenes against big actors too like you're going against Christoph Waltz doing an Academy Award winning performance and she's not only holding her own but she's really interesting in that scene too because she's portraying all those emotions under the surface it's a really good performance by her I saw that actress in an airport once <laughs> Very, and it was uh, either coming to or going to LA. Very pretty. Just saying, that's it. Um, Did you say so long, Soshana? (laughs) I had a quick question, and we kind of touched on it. So I'm going to, and we can always circle back then you guys want later. We mentioned Zoller. Is he, this is a character who, the first time I saw this, I thought he was just a monster pretending to be nice to get the girl. He just was putting on a face. Now, is this a character who's been warped by war? Does he have PTSD? Is this a guy who's really good? Is this Jon Snow who's really good at killing and doesn't like it? Or is this just a Nazi who's pretending like he doesn't like being a Nazi? This is a character, not that the movie rests on it, but it's, he is not quite a 
he's a little more nuanced than I think I realized initially. Or am I misreading this? Am I uh, am I uh, drinking the the, the Kool Aid here, guys? I happen to like that story arc, actually. I think uh, there's actually almost a Hitchcockian vertigo aspect to his, like, courtship of her. And it's like, is he going after her or is she leading him on into this, like, plot of her own kind of thing? And I think there's a nice dichotomy there. I also think it is up for interpretation, kind of, where it's like, is this guy just a soldier who was good at his job and he's just, like, actually a kind person who's looking for, like, somebody to be with? Or is he just another Nazi killer who also, when uh, kind of like pushed by this woman, turned into a monster like all Nazis do? I think there's a case for both sides there. And again, I really, I like Brule's uh, performance. I think he did a good job kind of like coming across as warm-hearted, but also still being like, actually, maybe this guy is a Nazi underneath uh, a lot of times and stuff. And like, maybe he is like, maybe all of them are just like sick people. Like, I, it's hard to, it's hard to parcel um, but I think that's all kind of in there. And I think that actually says a lot about like the times, like you could be a full on Nazi and also just kind of like be a boy looking for a girl kind of thing. I like that. I like that take. Brad Lena, what do you think? Yeah, it's, I feel like every time I watch it, I'm surprised when he loses his mind at the end and like goes after her because you're kind of convinced that he is this like, young nice he's pushy and he's obviously misreading signals but kind of up until that very end he's not like crossing a line i mean it is weird when when he sends like the gestapo officers to go and pick her up but he didn't know that they were going to do that like when she shows up he says oh i'm surprised you accepted my invitation yeah so like you're kind of led to believe that he is this innocent person who happens to be a prolific war hero. And, but I guess it's like to kind of circle back to the, to like the etiquette and the, the manners of like the way that they show these Europeans, like the second that she doesn't go along with what he's, what he wants to do and his view of their relationship and his view of her, like he can't take it, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the second wall is broken of like that wall of like etiquette. And he feels like it's in his right to latch out at her and, you know, attack her. Um, So I, but still, every time I watch it, I'm kind of surprised. Like in his mind, I think he thinks he is this nice, innocent guy who happens to be this war hero up until that moment when he loses it and he tells her, like, like, oh, I'm not the type person who you say no to like that's when you really see the true side of him but i don't think he really thinks of himself that way when he's courting yeah i I think those are both both great takes um we kind of talked about the duality of some of the characters this one i don't think will be as hard as a hard an answer this stuck out to me landa gives talks about his reputation twice first with mr lapetite and the first time he revels in it, you can just tell he loves being known as the Jew hunter. And then at the end, when he's negotiating with Aldo and Little Man and the Harvey Keitel general, he acts like he's affronted by the name. He never asks for the name. And that's what the whole joke with Little Man. And it reminded me of The Dark Knight, where you get these different versions of the makeup story. And in The Dark Knight, it's very ambiguous. And this, to me, I don't, I think Landa 
truly rebels. I think he is the Jew hunter and that he loves being this Nazi Gestapo monster. And I think he's just pretending at the end. Uh, but I, I, I'm asking that because it's occurred to me this time. It, we I saw The Dark Knight recently, and I just it, it was interesting. I saw, and again, this movie came out a year later. I'm not saying it stole anything, uh, but that just that I thought that was interesting. You get to see him kind of you see him react to his own reputation in two different ways. So think, I'm curious to you guys, which do you think was genuine or uh, what, what did you think of that? I thought, I thought actually that both are genuine because there's actually a time difference there. When he murders that family, that's five or four or five years previous to all the events with Operation Kino and everything, right? Because that Shoshana grows up and like gets a new identity and all that stuff. So I think you know, at the beginning, at the, you know, the rise of the Nazi party and the nationalism and any, everything, I think he was reveling in it. But then, you know, by the end, when the Third Reich's about to fall, I think he's much more pragmatic and probably already regrets a lot of the stuff he's doing and realizes he needs to get out of Germany and stuff. So I think, I think both reactions are actually genuine. Yeah, I kind of viewed it as um, in a slightly different way. I viewed him as almost like the ultimate deal maker or persuader or negotiator. And that he's just saying whatever he thinks is going to give him the upper hand in the conversation. And I think that the way that I perceive it, and I feel like this is one of those things that's totally up to perception, but like the way that I perceive it is that in that first scene, he's trying to intimidate Lapidate. And so he's embracing it. And then in the end, he's trying to ingratiate himself with Brad Pitt and then eventually like the U S army. Um, and at that point, that's why he's acting like he doesn't. And I feel like he's just a little bit of a sociopath and he's just saying whatever he can to kind of get his way. Um, but you know what I thought was interesting is what I thought you were going with this question was there are also two separate mentions of his, his reputation as a ladies man. <laughs> yeah, Did you guys right. notice that? Yeah, and like it's a it little bit like totally ladies' man or like raper kind of man. It's like it's not totally clear. They're just like you have a reputation. <laughs> yeah, like when when uh, Frederick Zoller when she wants when he wants to talk to Shoshana alone. Yeah, Frederick Zoller is like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, should I be concerned? I've heard of your reputation. Uh, and then it happens again later on as well. Yeah, with, I think um, Diane Kruger, the night of the movie, like he wants yeah. to talk to her alone, and she's like, "Well, you got a reputation." <laughs> it's not they're they're not implying there he's a rapist. Zoller Zoller could not do that. Not Zoller. We're talking about uh, Lana, right? No, but they're referring to the same reputation. So oh, Zoller yeah. reputation. He would not say that in public to a senior. He wouldn't say that ever to a oh. senior officer, especially in the Nazi war mocked war party he like he could be shot for that <laughs> like yeah. so again i might be reading too much into it i think you're supposed to read it i thought you were going to say is he homosexual which he is that's why he only had one guy of his crew come with him at the end oh yeah that was oh, that was my takeaway and i thought I, I i that was my take not that it's a huge part of the, the read but yeah. he doesn't he doesn't ask for a wife or girlfriend or spouse to come through with him he asks for some young handsome German lad. And he's extremely upset when they shoot him, like extremely emotional about it. Very true. Oh, so there's one thing we both kind of talked on a lot about the manners and everything. And there's just one thing, this again, I'm taking this from someone else, but 
this is like a movie that there are no heroes. The heroes in this are the bastards. And the bastards are not heroes. They are ambushing people. They are killing innocent civilians if they have to. They are, not that we see it in this, but they they would have killed everyone in that bar to get Van Hammer's mark out. The bastards in this are, and going back to the manners. So Shonda, you don't think the French aspect. girl is? Shoshana shoots Zoller in the back. Is but that she starts the fire in the movie. Right after she's going to... What? After she's going to... Seth, you think killing 500 people in a cinema is an act of heroism or an act of terrorism? <laughs> I think... I'm, I'm being serious. There, there are no heroes in this film. There's no act that you look at in this... There's no character in this film. You're like, you know what? I really want my kid to grow up to be like this. <laughs> unless it's unless it's Aldo scalping people. And that that's my take. That That's kind of my take. And uh, I think even Shoshana, where I'm saying and the reason with this is like the, coming by bringing it back to the manners, the way you guys are talking about it, it's they portray these Europeans as the manners and politeness is a mask. Right. And when shit hits the wall, you see what they're really like. The Americans are rough assholes, and they're like that when Aldo doesn't change when he's under custody. He doesn't change. He speaks the same way when he has a German officer under his thumb is when he's in a German officer's thumb. He headbutts Landa, an SS officer. In Ger- like, they're not, and this goes back to something, again, going back to this theme of like, no no good guys. Churchill said, we sleep safe at night because rough men defend us like at, at our borders. There's, you, there's very much this World War II and general warrior aspect where it's, you, Hickox isn't, Hickox, the British gentleman, is useless in this movie. And we will get into that in a moment. And all the people with manners end up being useless because when the guns come out, they all die. So that's kind of my take. I'm, I'm sorry, I came at you hard there, Seth. It's come okay. on, I know you want to defend uh, the terrorist. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Well, I mean, look, she's a Jewish girl in France. The Nazis are occupying France. Nazis have already killed her family. I don't think it's an act of terrorism to kill Nazis occupying your country who have killed your family in a movie theater that you own, I think that's just being actually heroic. So I'm a, I think she's the actual protagonist of the movie and the heroine, if you really are searching for someone like that. The Bastards, I agree with you. Uh, they are, like, it's this it's this very sort of, like, raw portrayal of Americans, and they, they pull no punches, and they're kind of like... Again, it's like that whole Dirty Dozen quality, where it's like, yeah, Jim Brown will, like, run the bomb at the end, and then, like... You know, they'll all shoot each other up, and even if they die in that explosion, it doesn't matter because they were like fighting for justice, kind of thing. And it's like, it, see, to me, it's like tonally, all of that doesn't meld together at the end the right way. It's just like, I don't think that you have this final confrontation between Lada and Soshana, and I don't think like whatever was like the plot of the bastards. I feel like she was gonna burn down that movie theater anyway. I don't even know that the bomb plot like really mattered at the end, and like you said, like. The, the British officer didn't matter, and it's like, that bar seems incredible, but, but honestly, in terms of the plot, that that all seems like uh, outside of, like, the actual main narrative to me. Let's, um, should we go into the, the bar right now? Because I have a question about that, but I can tell Brad, looking at that face, he wants to, uh, he's ready to talk about the bar scene. I'm ready. I love the bar scene. You bet, Brad, you want to you wanna lead us into it? You want to tell us what you like about it? Or, uh, I mean, or, or I can tell you my question, but lead us in, lead us in. I, I feel like the bar scene, this movie is characterized as an action slash adventure movie, like everywhere it's listed, and there's very little action. 
it's all dialogue, but it does feel like it reads to the viewer as an action movie, as, as an adventure movie or as like a thriller. Um, and it's all through this dialogue that just gets like heightened and heightened. And then there's like an easing with like some humor and then it's heightened and heightened and, and ease. Like I felt like I was more tense watching this than I was watching, you know, an actual horror movie. Uh, because of the way that you come to fear some of the characters, the way you come to root for some of the characters and the way that they like construct this like house of just tension with language. And I feel like that scene is just like the best example of it. Like just I'm glued to the screen. I don't know how long that scene is in my mind. It's like five minutes, but it probably goes on for like 30 and the way that the key changes from like, and the way that they splice in this like humor and this like positivity and they're playing this game the whole time that adds up game. Um, and the way that the, the key completely changes when the Gestapo officer hears them and you realize that there's somebody in there who could actually get them into trouble. Um, I, and I think that like for someone who's in so little of a movie, um, Fassbender does just an absolutely incredible job. Like, he's just magnetic. He's, like, the biggest... Hey, is that a Magneto ever. joke? Is that a Magneto hey. joke? All right. <laughs> wasn't, actually. But he's just so magnetic. It's, like, you can't look away from him. And, like, when he shifts from that, like, super kind of, like, pretentious, super educated British accent into German back to British, it's just, like... And he has some of the best lines ever. Um... I don't know. I love that scene. It's the whole premise is idiotic. And I love that like Brad Pitt calls it out. Like, <laughs> why are we fighting in the damn basement? And that's all they talk about is that it makes no sense. And it truly does. Like, why did they have to meet in public? Why did they have to do it at a bar? And why couldn't they leave before guns came out? Like when it was, you know, it's one of those things where when you're watching it, like as far as plot goes, you start to question like, how could this, how really could this have happened? But I just feel like it's worth it because the way that they construct the dialogue, just it's one of my favorite scenes of all time. I like it. The one thing I'll say is you hit the you hit it right on the head how the improbability of meeting there is such an issue, but then they talk about it. And then I like the interrogation of her afterwards. It's actually one of the, the more one of the harder scenes to watch, I think. Mm -hmm. But she has this line that's perfect. She's like, it's either a terrible accident or conspiracy it can't be both mm -hmm. you choose like you tell me what and they ended up making the right decision realizing that she is a spy not a soldier and wasn't expecting and she even says that she wasn't expecting a gunfight um seth what do you what do you what do you think about that scene generally i i mean honestly it's probably like the jewel of the movie uh unless you want to make a hard argument for the beginning but it's uh it's a master class in dialogue and in, in terms of building dialogue and also in terms of like transient dialogue versus opaque dialogue and like all those levels in terms of like people sort of like not giving away their hand and then kind of giving away their hand and then explicitly telling you what they think and it's like going up those levels and then down those levels and just like Brad was describing it's like he does this whole thing where it's like he'll build it once and then bring it down and build it again and it's like you don't know it he's kind of learned from this point because he's I mean this is kind of midway through his career that it's like he didn't want to like give away his hand you know it's like if you watch the uh, the overdose scene in Pulp Fiction 
that's a clear like he builds up to this moment and then they slam an adrenaline needle into this woman and it's like it's a really cool way to do it but in this in this bar scene like Brad's describing it's like he plays with the tension a lot more and there's a lot more depth to it and I mean obviously it's a much longer scene but it's a similar payoff at the end and again it's like a Mexican standoff which again is a, a Tarantino signature I also think there's a subtle moment both in the opening and this bar scene where he does a rotation around the table, which is a subtle nod to Reservoir Dogs. And it's like, those kind of cookies are what I enjoy a lot more when I'm watching his movies, as opposed to like some of the more in-your-face stuff. And so, you know, everything in that bar scene is like what's fun about Tarantino movies. And so it's like, I'm, it's like, I'm happy that he made this movie just for like scenes like that, honestly. It's a fun scene. It's, I won't say anything else about it. I think you guys said pretty much everything. I do have a question, though. I Did we all like the what gives them away? How they do the three? How did, I, I like that. Did you guys enjoy that? I love that. I thought it was good. I, was not, I, I mean, I didn't know the Germans did that, so it worked for me, I guess. Yeah, it was a, it was a learning thing for me. Although, here's something I do want to ask you guys. Britain's pretty well known for spies, but generally seeing the importance of this mission could they have gotten a better spy and i'm not even faulting him for the finger issue it's his accent that these low-ranking soldiers were even calling out about how strange and this time when i listened to it it did sound weird he had this brogue accent as he's speaking the german not that i'm an expert by any means I'm not, it doesn't ruin the movie. I love it. I've seen it enough times. I'm not going to, it doesn't ruin it for me. And I, to your point, Brad, I think every time Fassbender's on screen, it's great. It reminds me, while it's a different performance, it reminds me of him in 300, where he was just one of the best things about this movie. And you while you left it, and I forget, it feels like he's in it a lot longer because he does such a great job. But I just... I can't help but ask. You couldn't have got someone who spoke German without an accent. Well, I also think strategically, before the whole thing happens, he's talking to the bastards. He goes up to Hugo Stiglitz and he says, I need to know you can keep your cool because, like, if we lose our cool, that's how we're going to get, you know, that's how they're going to realize it's us. And Hugo Stiglitz is polishing his knife. He's like, do I not look calm to you? It's such a great response. But, it's incredible. Um, then it, it really is, it's his fault. Because not only is it the accent, but it's when he raises his voice at that guy, um, <laughs> Wilhelm, yeah. Willie, and Wilhelm won't leave them alone. And he finally raises his voice and he says, you, like, you've overstayed your welcome. You need to leave us right now. How dare you sit here with us? And that's when finally the Gestapo officer interjects and comes out of his like little corner is when he hears that. And so he kind of like, he gave it away regardless. Like he couldn't keep his cool. I actually, uh, which I was interesting. I wondered if the, the Gestapo officer comes over and they kind of have drinks and they start playing the game, but they only play one round. And it's kind of like, um, Fassbender is like, he basically loses his patience and that, and t- says that he's like pestering yep. the lady and needs to go and stuff. And it's like, I kind of like, why don't you just play the game a little more? And like get through that with you know that to me is kind of maybe the the thinnest part of it where it's like if you're really a British like whatever secret undercover guy like I think you'd know enough to not piss that guy off and just like play the game and keep drinking until he goes away or something. Yeah, it's a 
foul on Archie Hickox there. <laughs> it's just like, I'm out. He's just uh, got tired yeah, of it. That's a great, yeah, it's such a great subversion. I mean, the way he uses the bastards generally. I, we could just introduce to him, and then he knocks out like two of the cool, three of the coolest ones, the two German Germans are now bastards mm-hmm. and Hickox. Uh, I have a couple more questions unless you guys want to say anything else. The only thing I was going to say is that it really rewards the rewatch because the moment was fooled and then it seems like he knows what's going on. But in that moment, he's kind of leaning back and it seems like he's relaxing. But if you rewatch it, there's a moment where he puts up a three and the Gestapo officer is just sitting there very relaxed and kind of just jerks his head up and clocks it and then looks back down and like goes back to what he was doing but i would have never noticed that the first time i watched it but it is really when you know it's about to end it also i just thought that was a nice little chef's kiss on the scene <laughs> yeah there's a lot of fun you guys said you guys studied about several of the characters there's a lot of small nuances and like small acting moments. I feel like it really, really worked on rewatch. All right. What happens to half of the guys we see in that first forest? Cause we never see them again, at least half. We only ever really find out what happens to about like six or seven. To the guys where? Are they dead? Are they like scalping Nazis? Am I the only one who's thought about this? Are we not worried about the other little bastards? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I never noticed that before. <laughs> um, just me looking after the linemen of the group. The, uh, the uh, Seth, uh, Seth's speechless. He didn't even realize there were other bastards. He only ever looks at the marquee. Well, uh, I don't even, I'm just shocked well, right now. What about the crew? One thing, one thing I kind of, if we're talking about the bastards section of it, um, uh, Tarantino kind of introduces them through his like one of his expository means. He he also used it in Kill Bill to kind of build up characters and like and what they've done in the past and stuff. Where he kind of does cutbacks and like shows these things. I wish actually that they had done early in the film had you know they kind of do this thing where they um, they break that guy out of jail. Um, I think it's the Hans Lieber character, whatever that guy's name is. And they break him out of jail and it's like, yeah, Hans Ziegler. And they, they want him to join them. But it's like, I think it would have worked better if you had an operation where all of them are doing things and they all show their skills and then they break that guy out of jail. I think that works a lot better story-wise instead of like just uh, doing cutbacks and being like, this is what this guy did and this is the bear Jew. And it's like, I feel like that's more hacky filmmaking as opposed to like actually doing something that could have been cool and like shows off everyone's skills and everything. Again, though, you know, Tarantino's drawing on a lot of uh, other films and Dirty Dozen and stuff. Um, so I did want to note uh, the music in this movie, I think is mostly good. I think the score is really good. Again, the Leone influence, a lot of the characters have their own theme music. Uh, Walt's character has his own music and stuff, and I think a lot of the music is good. The, the one weird part is uh, musically, I think, is the David Bowie part, where uh, Soshana's, like, getting dressed for the movie, and all of a sudden you get this David <laughs> Bowie single in there, and it's like, I get it, like, 
okay, like Bowie's German or something, and like the, I get the Germans love Bowie, but I just I just thought again, totally in the movie, it's just so incongruous with the rest of the score. I think that's very fair. I remember being in the theater and just looking very high, but looking around, <laughs> wondering what the fuck is happening. Just the Bowie music comes out of nowhere. I like it. It works by the end. It kind of, especially as it's it's the transition of the final act. So yeah. then, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with you hundred percent. So well, there's also the like in addition to that Bowie part when they are talking about Hugo Stiglitz, they do those like heavy metal riffs. You know, yeah. and that's also completely out of nowhere. But what's funny is I never really noticed the the Bowie thing. Like I never noticed it as being odd. I thought it was just like a badass scene, and she's like putting on the makeup. <laughs> oh, it's total Ben Patel stuff. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's very. It's like he's but referencing. I just never noticed yeah. how weird it was in hindsight. But in hindsight, you're right. It is odd. And then the other thing is he's kind of taking. He's putting in these like classical piano riffs like Beethoven but also mixing it with this like western yeah. like he's literally taking songs from from like great western movies yeah I, I was just saying he was uh, yeah a lot of those Leone westerns that were uh, scored by Ennio Morricone who scored Hateful Eight for Tarantino but like a lot of those movies they, they'll have theme music for specific characters and Tarantino does a lot of that in his and including this one where it's like when Walt's character comes on your mind remembers the music and you immediately tense up again because you've seen that scene from the beginning. And like that works throughout another thing that uh, Kubrick would do that a lot as well. But like, it's a, it's a good filmmaking technique. Um, the, oh yeah. The other thing I wanted to say quickly uh, just about Waltz, uh, cause I do think his performance really stands out kind of more than everyone else. Before Sorry. let's, I, I think we will have a whole section for Waltz. I have a couple sure. more questions before we dive into that just yet. And do you guys have anything, uh, do you guys have anything, any of your own questions? Because I think we're going to move into likes and dislikes after this happens. And for me, I know at least for Waltz, he's like a huge part of why I love this film. So I have one more question regarding the film that I would like to just quickly ask you. To. I have a question as well. Okay. We can do that after. So Brad, you go first. I've been okay. talking a lot. My question is, and I don't know the answer to this. I don't even know if I have an opinion. So when Hans Landa kills... Bridget von Hammersmark. At that point, it's pretty crucial the timing. Like he just let bastards in with what he knows are, you know, dynamite attached to their legs, and he takes out like five minutes of his evening to go and question von Hammersmark to let her let her know that he knows that she's a traitor in a very suspenseful way that's like super well done and well written and well acted. But then he strangles her to death and then he goes and he turns on his country too. And I guess I'm wondering why do you guys think he did that? Oh, I, I mean, at that point they're losing the war. The Americans were on the, the Normandy beach in France. And I think anyone in a high level would have known that the Germans were losing the war. So he's looking for an exit route, which is the smart thing to do. Whereas, like, all the scenes, all the cuts to Hitler and stuff, he's obviously lost his mind and is in it till the ship goes down kind of thing. So, I mean, I think he's... But I'm wondering why he killed von Hammersmark. This is the way I look at it, is that he, I agree with Seth. I think he knew they were going to lose. I think he's looking for a way out. 
I think he suspected Von Hammer Smark and just like the Snow White Cinderella thing, putting the shoe on. I think he wants to kill her. <laughs> Wilhelm also showed an especial hatred for her betrayal, which I just think it's naturally that nationalistic. You you're a traitor. Just we. I think it's yeah. just it's one thing for your spy. It's one thing for a French woman to do it, but for your own countrymen to kind of betray you. But to your point about the hypocrisy of uh, Christopher, Christoph Waltz, I, I think he's just a hypocrite. I think he's a, a sadist and a monster. I don't think it, it would ever occur to him or he'd care, or it would occur to him, he just wouldn't care. But I think what's happening there is that he's looking for a way out. And it's one thing to find out the, the Americans are no longer in Normandy. Now they're in the fucking theater. And you find out this lady got them in there. And so you might have thought the war, you had two, three, four, five years left. And you find out that they're in the room, in the building with uh, Hitler. So I guess for, for him, it's he might move his timetable up fast. He removes Van Hammersmark and now she's gone and he's the hero of the night. And he can tell the story. So now with her gone, it's also now he's the hero. He can, and you get that. And he also... I think what might have happened, he probably had all the other bastards killed, or they de- or they died. The only the only two we see leave are those two. So uh, I think an, I another point is I think that's a, oh you go you go Seth. I think another read is this shit that like he actually enjoys the killing and he enjoys toying with people and that you know that whole thing where he revels in being the Jew hunter in the beginning. I think I think he totally has a sadist side to him, which is a reflection of Nazis <laughs> from that time and stuff. And so it's like. It wouldn't surprise me if that's actually the way that that kind of guy sort of gets his rocks off. is just like toying with a, a fragile woman alone and then strangling her. It all kind of like goes back to that Nazi madness stuff. <laughs> I would say that's on brand for Nazis. Um, and the one thing I will say is going back to something we kind of talked about earlier. Uh, just to clarify, I believe that... Christoph Waltz's character could definitely be a serial rapist, attacker, sexual predator, serial killer, maybe even. But going back to the reputation aspect, neither one of those characters would say that in public to him In with that in mind. So it might be more so, like, in, it might be more so, oh, he's got a reputation for the ladies, but in real, it could be a Harvey Weinstein thing, which... Producer. Actually a great question. Great edit question. Uh, I just need you guys. Masterful segue. <laughs> Masterful segue. Guys, sometimes sometimes they just happen, Brad. This is the magic of podcasting. Um, <laughs> um sorry. Just cracking. Gasoline putting out a fire. You're okay. And Brad, you're back recording. Seth, that's magic. Is that magic, Seth? Totally magic. (laughs) All right. um, I had one last question, a few more questions, and then we're going to get into likes. Don't worry, Seth. I know you're ready to, you're chomping it. You you want that Walt, you want that Christoph Waltz combo? I want that combo. We're going to have that combo in two minutes. First off, after my beautiful segue into Weinstein and about 30 seconds of dead air, I want to get back to that. Does Quentin Tarantino get enough shit for working with Harvey Weinstein? Or does he deserve any... What do we think about this? 
Um, I, d I heard that it was very hard to get Brad Pitt to agree to this specifically because the incident with Gwyneth Paltrow had already happened with Weinstein. And so uh, Tarantino, I think, but personally, like, built up relation with Pitt to get him into the movie. Um, so it's like, you know, it's like it's clear at that time stories about Weinstein had to have been circulating inside of Hollywood. Uh, so I do at this point, it's like I'm happy to hold it against Tarantino and all these people making movies uh, with Harvey Weinstein. That it's like I'm sure those stories were out by that point because the Gwyneth Paltrow thing had happened. So if you want to hold it against him, hold it against him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I don't follow enough of the Hollywood news to know how much shit Tarantino gets for it. But I can say that if it's not a lot, then it probably should be. Because, I mean, I know how I would react in that situation. Um, if I knew that somebody was a predator, I would want to stop doing business with them immediately no matter how good of a business person they were, you know? So also the stories, again, of, the stories of Uma Thurman, uh, with Weinstein and Tarantino on the set of the Kill Bill movies, not great stories either. Really? Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I guess where I'm coming at, I'm not, and Seth and I, you, we've had this conversation before about <laughs> separating like art from people and when you can, when you should like those. And for me, I'm not. I'm not gonna crucify Tarantino here. I'm not gonna say all oh, those movies stink. Uh, and honestly, I, I just wanted to bring it up because I don't think he. It's not that he doesn't get enough shit for it. I just think it's something he was so quintessential. I don't know enough about college football, but it would be like if his. It, it would be. Who is that great linebacker? It would be like some great NFL player who came out of Penn State. Oh, yeah. Just make Lamar it. Aaron. And, yeah, or not Joe. Um, not Paterno. Who is the uh, the pedophile? Sandusky. I'm losing, Sandusky. Sandusky. I'm losing myself here. It's like finding out that, <laughs> I mean, Penn, screw it. Say Penn State. It's a linebacker coach. That was a linebacker coach. Yeah. Who's it? LeVar Arrington. Is, is that the guy from Penn State, Brad? Is yeah. that the good linebacker? That's who I'm thinking. It's just like. And by the way, I don't blame LeVar Arrington at all because this analogy just crumbled on itself. But I guess what I'm saying is it's just I don't think he deserves any extra shit. I just think it's something that I think deserves mention because I think it's tough for him. I mean, um, sorry to cut you off. I just think it's like that, you know, you have to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think you have to kind of understand Tarantino's relationship a little bit more with him because it's like, not everyone thought Tarantino was going to make it. This wasn't a guy that came out of fucking film school or like was one of these guys that like, you know, had, had a red carpet into Hollywood. It's like, he really did have to prove himself. And early on, Harvey Weinstein did back him, you know, making independent films. When Reservoir Dogs hit Sundance, that was a huge deal. Nobody had seen an independent movie that violent at the time. And to kind of have Harvey, you know, back him with that movie and then continue to back him through his career, you know, Pulp Fiction nearly winning Best Picture and stuff like that. It's like you have to realize if I had a producer that had been through those kind of battles with me and got me to that point of my career, like I would be trusting that producer with these, you know, with other projects. So it's like 
I, I, from a business end, I can totally understand why Tarantino felt comfortable with him. I mean, they were also giving Tarantino carte blanche for these movies. They don't go nuts for Kill Bill that turned into two movies. It's supposed to be one movie. And so it's like, obviously, there were reasons he was like making movies with the wine scenes and stuff. That does It does not, uh, you know, apologize for any of Harvey's behaviors. I would also say it's like, those are Harvey's behaviors. Those aren't Quentin's behaviors. Just because he's associated with them. I don't know, but it's, you know, it's like, obviously there's bad stories and it's like, there's a lot of hindsight. I would actually, I actually kind of think that Tarantino these days gets more shit for like the exploitative kind of accusations. And like, did you, are you exploiting the Holocaust to make a very violent movie? Or are you exploiting slavery to use the N word a lot? And I think he gets a lot more stuff out of kind of the woke liberal crowd for that than kind of being associated for Harvey Weinstein. I would agree with you there. I guess now that I kind of heard you guys talk about it. Yeah, I, I don't, he doesn't deserve any extra shit. And to peel back the onion that is Hollywood, if you're going to apply that same lens, Matt, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck have worked with him, Peter Jackson. There are a lot of people who've worked with Harvey Weinstein. And I'm not saying that means, oh, okay, it's no big deal. I'm just saying to apply it fairly it shouldn't just be going to Tarantino. And the other thing is Hollywood, the, not to get too dark or anything, but the Corey, I'm blanking on the name Seth, the Corey's from the eighties. Oh, yeah. Those, those stories are real. Like there really are like sexual predators and pedophiles in Hollywood. So it's, there's a, it's, if you're going to shine the morality light on all these films, sadly, there probably wouldn't be many films if there weren't a lot of bad guys making them. And that sounds really cynical. And I'm going to cut that, Brad. So you, I'm going to cut that. So don't worry about that. Um, all right. I have talked a lot. I said a lot of questions. Now, do we want to, I think we should save who we would be. Do we want to talk about some of the likes? Or, I think there's some more, some more meat on this bone. Yeah. Seth, I've been, Seth, I've just been keeping you at bay this whole hour. I'm going to let you dive in. I'm just going to hand it off to you. Okay. You tell me what you're thinking. Don't hold back. Um, you want me to do Christoph Waltz now? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> if you want to do Christoph Waltz, you do, we'll, we'll do the Christoph okay. Waltz. Okay, Christoph Waltz. So first off, had never heard of Christoph Waltz before this movie. No idea who this guy was. Um, upon seeing this movie, uh, he immediately to me, was, like, probably within the top ten best actors in Hollywood, and then kind of, like, uh, confirmed that for me uh, upon Django. I also think, in this performance specifically, um, he portrays a lot of fear. He also has a lot of humor. Um, also, like, acting-wise, all the little details with his character, where it's, like, just the way he sits down uh, in the beginning with the, the Frenchman uh, protecting his family and, like, the way he takes out his pen and undoes the pen and gets the ink and, like, sucks the ink up and all these small things that he clearly practiced and perfected and, like, does so succinctly and efficiently like a very specific German person would. And it's, like, uh, you know, and it's the same way when he when he has the, the strudel with a Shoshana later and, like, the way he very specifically wants to eat it. He needs the cream on it. He, he cuts it a certain way and stuff. And it's like, and then at the end, it's like even on the telephone where he's negotiating uh, his, his access into America, it's, a, it's all this very specific and, you know, very like, like Brad said too, all this politeness and etiquette. And it's like to have that much politeness and etiquette and still be so menacing and so mean as a villain. Uh, 
I think he was, I mean, not only did he deserve the, the Academy Award for Supporting Actor that year, but it was one of those where it was like, that's a memorable one. Like, he clearly won that one. Yeah, he should have gotten, like, an Oscar that was like this, that yeah. was like 10 times the normal size of an Oscar, and 10 times the weight for that. Because that was just incredible. And it just launches like, yeah, like you said, the second you see it, you're like, okay, I'm going to be... I'm going to be enjoying Christoph Waltz for a very long time now. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that his career, he kind of has played that role a few times and he's incredible at it, but it's not like he's ever stepped into like a leading man type thing. Maybe that's fine. But um, yeah. Not a bit of the case of a radio play. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But he's got that like, you know, the, the term, like, making a meal of it, like, he makes a feast of every scene. Like, like you said, he's if he's going to do a pen, it's going to be a fountain pen, and he's going to unscrew it, and he's going to pour the ink out, and then he's going to dip it, and then he's going to check it a couple times. And then, like, when he does the, smokes the pipe, he pulls out the, ridiculous pipe, pulls out yeah. the tobacco, the little thing that he uses to, like, the detail of, like, not only is he going to, like, fill it with tobacco and start smoking it, but then he uses that little thing to kind of clear a path through the pipe. Yeah, like yeah. just the little extra flourishes. And it's all while he's speaking multiple languages and just carrying on this conversation. But it's in every scene. It's like he's embodying the character so physically. Yeah, yeah. He also I'm he's, he's taking it back. <laughs> I'm uh Christoph Waltz does not have a case of radio face. I'm looking at a picture of him in 2012. Put some butter on that bread and gobble him up. Okay, <laughs> Seth, I'm sorry, I cut you off. What were you saying? Uh, uh, just that he really does dominate every scene. Not just like acting. Like I mean, I don't want to say he's blowing people out of the water in this movie because I think most of the scenes, uh, the other actors honestly do a good job opposite him. But uh, he just to have the upper hand that way in every scene. It's a, it's almost like a Hannibal Lecter quality when you're watching Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs where you're just like, man, it doesn't even matter if this guy's in jail. Like, I feel like he's got the upper hand. It's like, you always feel that way with him and his dialogue. And yeah, it, it's a great marriage between that Tarantino dialogue and an actor. And it's like, I love when that when it happens for the first time like that. It's really fun. It's really fun. Just like in, inside of a movie. You guys said it. This was his real... The, this was a moment, yeah, in the theater and afterwards, I was excited to see it, to realize he was now part of Hollywood, and that I, I was excited to see him again. And Seth, you touched on something I've talked about before, polite villains. I just find something so, I'm drawn to them, especially when they're funny. I just think the, I have said it before, but just like the hypocrisy of it, this guy's about to kill Ben Homer Smart. And the way he does it so violent, and they do all these awful things. But up until that last second, they'll just pretend, fuck, in my opinion, fucking with you, yeah. like, like they want. And um, I just love, I love him. There are many reasons why I love him. You guys have said all of it much better than I will. Uh, I did have oh, one other thing on Walt. Yeah, yeah. The scene yeah. that doesn't get talked about a lot that I think is so great and also so funny is that scene at the at the movie theater when he encounters the bastards and Bridget von Hammersmark and he is just toying with them completely because by that point you've established he knows exactly where Van Hammersmark was the night before 
so he asks her about the ankle and she's like, Oh, I broke it mountain climbing. And he starts <laughs> laughing and it's so genuine. And he walks around the whole room. does the whole laugh. He grabs someone's, he grabs like a, you know, Prosecco or something and like downs it, and comes back and he like composes himself because he's like, you can tell in his mind, like he's just curious what lies she was going to tell. And he just like talk about making a meal of it. And then he comes back and he starts asking the bastards their names. And like, he's literally just saying, like, come on, say it again with a little music. Like, he knows. And, and it's so disorienting the first time you watch it because you're like, okay, I mean, does he know? And like, he's not that dumb. And then you start to realize, oh no, he obviously knows. But it, when you watch it, it's really disorienting because you're trying to figure out what he's doing, why he would like, let them into the theater and for a second you almost think did they convince him like you kind of are confused but re-watching it, it and you know exactly what he's doing oh man it really rewards the the rewatch. it's so funny and it's so well acted and just so like big and over the top totally totally agree the, the dominic Dakota. oh sorry seth you got it uh, yeah, and just like the physical, like like Brad, there's a physicality to his performance, even though it's not like he's doing any action scenes. But like in that scene, he's using his entire body. He walks around the whole room. It's just like there really is. He uses every uh, sort of like asset that he has as an actor to like pull off that role. And so like it like like Brad said too on the rewatch when you realize he does totally know the plan. It's really funny to just see him fucking with him throughout that scene. <laughs> He's great. This is uh, he's so great in this movie. I have two questions. Do we think he's ever hit this height again? And does he need to? Because he is it. This is one of the most incredible performances I think. And Tarantino said it's one of his proudest creations. He thought it was unplayable the way it was written. I think we all agree. It's he is. I think it seems not something we all agree is the best part of, the, of a great film or the best part of the film. Uh, Seth might disagree with the great film part, but um, just looking at Waltz, like I, I, I like him, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in a negative way. I am a little disappointed in what we've seen from him. Although I don't like Django and Chan, I think he's the best part of that. Outside of those two Tarantino films, I just don't think any American directors used them properly, and that might be a bitter, bigger indictment on American filmmaking than on. Are you not an Alita Battle Angel guy? <laughs> I, Brad, I was actually one of the seven guys who saw it in theaters. And no, I'm not an elite of that. That movie, spent, they spent like four years and $500 million making that movie. Not impressed. Not impressed. Um, well, I don't know. I think that like he's so perfect in this and equally perfect in Django. I prefer him in this. Like he is, like this movie, as I've, been gushing the whole time is obviously like my favorite movie ever and it's like if this movie is a puzzle he's like this puzzle piece that takes up like 80 percent of the board like it's it's he so perfectly fits into the whole movie and the way it's written and like you just can't imagine this movie with anybody else you know so yeah, I'm, like I don't think he's ever reached the same height. I feel like Django Unchained was great, and he was awesome in it, but I just can't ever see him as a leading man. And maybe that's fine. I don't know. What do you think, Seth? Um, I think I think he's having a little bit 
trouble sort of like steering his career after his uh his run in with Tarantino. Um I did see him in uh that Polanski movie, Carnage. Uh speaking of troubled people, by the way, Polanski's a troubled man, but Carnage Weird movie. Waltz is pretty good in it, though. Um, I think I did see him in the James Bond movie, which is like, okay, like you were like in a James Bond movie. It's it's clearly like not the best utilization of him. Um, I think he might be ripe for like, uh, like doing kind of like a Netflix prestige series kind of thing. Like if you want to cast him as a lead, maybe he could show off his skills more as like, you know, in some kind of a, a show like that. I don't know. I mean, maybe he is destined to be more of a character actor. Although it's like you watch him in *Glorious Bastards*, it seems like he could literally do anything. So it's like it wouldn't surprise me if, like, eventually he'll just find the right project, whether it's a movie or or something TV wise. I agree with you, Seth. I think he's too talented. I keep thinking I just want to see him as a detective. It doesn't need to be Sherlock Holmes. It, it doesn't. He's essentially a detective in, in *Glorious Bastards*. I would just love to see Christoph, Christoph Waltz in the HBO or Netflix. I want to see him in the streaming service series where it's a six or eight episode. Yeah, it seems like he could do something like History. that. Yeah. That's where I want to see him. That's <laughs> You're welcome, Christoph Waltz. You just save your career. Congrats. Uh, I also, I think he's done uh, a lot of Broadway too. Like, I know he does a lot of theater, so. Yeah, he still works. I just like, he it looks like he has some more things coming out. I think... We've, if we've seen the best of him, I'm happy for it. I'm glad to have it, but I hope the best is yet to come. That'd be incredible, though, if he can outdo. If he can outdo Landa, I don't. I would. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, right now, I would actually bet the bastards like is his peak. But if he outdoes it, hats off to him. <laughs> to be cap to him. Okay. Uh, do are are there any other likes? You talked about the music stuff. I know you didn't love the Bowie stuff. But I actually really love the rest of the music as well. Um, are there any other cast members outside of it being an ensemble cast? I genuinely one other. Uh, uh, were there any actors you want to talk about? Uh, one other thing I like, I guess, is uh, the cinematography. I actually do think it blended well. He does a lot of set shots um, early in the film. And then when you get to the Operation Kino at the movie theater, it turns into a fucking Brian De Palma movie with this floating camera in and out of groups and up and down the stairs. And like, it's really cool uh, when he, because uh, most directors wouldn't do something like that. Most directors would shoot a movie the same style throughout a movie. And But it's like, it's cool to me that like, he knows when he gets to a certain section of a movie to change his own directorial style. Like the way that shot in the movie theater is a thousand times different than how it's shot inside that bar. Yeah. Interesting. I, I wouldn't be able to speak to it, but I know it looked pretty. So I like the pretty pictures. So I, I agree with yeah. you. The only other thing I would say, the guy, and I have never seen him in anything else. So if you guys have, let me know. The guy who is the Gestapo officer. Oh, I shows that up too. For two scenes. And my goodness, like he's going toe to toe with like Fast Bender in the most tense scene, like that movie, that scene is like the crown jewel of the movie. And he is like the, he's the villain in it. You know, it's not, it's not Landa, it's him. And I feel like I've never seen the guy before. I've never seen him since, but he's got this incredible energy and like this, it's scary while also being like compelling. 
And I just, I, I thought that that guy was incredible, but I feel like I've never seen him in anything else. I had the same thought. Oh, Brad, same you thing. don't mean... You, oh, Seth, you guys have never heard of August Deal, born 4th of January, 1976, is a German actor primarily known to international audiences for playing Gestapo major Dieter Hellstrom in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Oh. Don't know him. Oh, Dieter Hellstrom. Me. What a name. Dieter Hellstrom. And his. Uh, he also played Evelyn Salt's husband in the movie Salt. So... <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about. He's got, <laughs> uh, he, it looks like looking at his career, he is a German theater actor and looks like he's a pretty prolific, prolific theater, TV, movie German actor. Uh, I agree with you guys. I'm surprised we didn't see him in more things. I, I think there's honestly just, a, I don't think it's like a racist. I just think it's, we see how long it took to get like movies with black Americans and Hispanic Americans. I, I don't know if America's ready for all these Europeans yet. Well, just think about the, the task that Tarantino had directing all of these people in foreign languages, writing the dialogue in foreign languages. It's, it's actually insane when you think about it. I think I read that only a third of the movie is in English. And yeah. I, I mean, you just think about the challenge of being an American director and trying to navigate this and, I mean, it's incredible. The degree of difficulty is not something you think about until you really like consider it later on, but it's incredible. Very impressive. Were there uh, anything else we want to talk about? Any specific cast members? Anything on your mind, fellas? I've got a couple more questions for us, but I want to throw it to you. Okay. Okay. Do we have any... Now, this might be a little tough because I know Brad, Brad might not have any for this, but do we have any gripes of wrath you want to share? Any <laughs> any issues with the film? Any, okay, any can marks I, against it? Any demerits? I'll, I'll throw it to Seth right now. Yeah. Uh, I just want, like, fantasy casting. Can I hit you guys with a couple things here? <laughs> hit me. What if, if, what if you swapped Woody Harrelson for Brad Pitt? I feel like it's like a little more American, a little more rough, like a little more believable for me as like a military commander kind of guy. Brad, you see what I have to deal with this, with this guy? You just blew my effing mind. Are you, that's a better movie, Seth. I'm going to shut up. Brad, try and disagree. Try and disagree. Seth. No, it's true. I mean, like, basically like Brad Pitt's, I feel like Brad Pitt's really good in this, but it's not like, you it doesn't seem like he's trying you know it seems like they're basically giving him a pretty one note role to play and i think that woody harrelson would be way more natural in that note and in that tone um brad pitt's too pretty almost to be believable I, I, that's a great call, Seth. <laughs> I that's think call. I, I, I think they had him. He's the only movie star, and like he was the he was the headliner of this movie. Yeah, and all the marketing was around him being this movie. So that's yeah, it's why like you think about it now. Think, yeah, nobody knew who Waltz was. Nobody knew who Fassbender was. Diane Kruger was just the lady from National Treasure. It was you know Brad Pitt was really carrying the headline, and uh, I think if I was casting, honestly, I would have put a little more starness into that into the bastards like 
I also thought like uh, Matthew McConaughey was another guy I thought of for the pit role. Um, also, I just think that like I'm not saying that it needed to be Ocean's Eleven for the bastards, but I just think to marry the Dirty Dozen, you needed more sort of famous, recognizable stars than people like B.J. Novak and Eli Roth. Like, I think if you got, you know, I don't know, I don't want to, you know, but like if you got The Rock at the time or something, or like, you, I understand why they're picking Jewish people also, I'm not saying just to throw The Rock in any fucking movie, but like, I'm just saying, I feel like if you're really going to pull off the tone that he was going for, you should have more recognizable stars in those roles. <laughs> I That's very fair, Seth, but one retort, you keep saying Dirty Dozen, Yeah, there's more of a Bad News Bears act to them. I think that I... There's a dirty dozen, but it, I, there. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I think he's painted with a couple shades. I there. also think. Well, have you ever seen? Um, dirty dozen. Sorry, have you ever seen The Great Escape? I also think there's oh, a lot I'm of Great say, Escape in there too. Yes, yes, I, I've seen The Great Escape, uh, but I do hear what you're saying, or at the very least, you call, you said this before, Seth. Give us an episode where we see why, or not episode, give us a scene. Why is Little Man rolling around with Aldo and the, and the Bear Jew? They've yeah. got some guys, and, and we see why Stiglitz, and I think uh, we see why Stiglitz and some of these other guys are there, but we don't really get to see. I keep saying Little Man. It's Little Man and the guy who's Dominic de Coco. There's only a few of them <laughs> who we don't get to see, but it, it would have been nice to to see a little bit more and i do i do kind of at the same time i will just say i do like how you he develops them through the reports to hitler and from the report and from the meeting with the british when they're debriefing hickox and then so you kind of get to build them up at the same time it doesn't work because we meet them immediately and then you hear about them. So, all right, I'm kind of losing myself here. I'm going to throw it back to you guys. Well, uh, so, I read that all the guys playing um, the bastards are screenwriters. And that that was like a deliberate choice was putting like Jewish screenwriters as actors in those roles. Um, it jo- worked. I, well, just personally, that's a cool subtext. I don't think that's how I would cast my movies. Like, I don't think that would be like the the primary way I would cast my movies. Is like, you made the point clear. This movie was lacking one rock, <laughs> one Dwayne Johnson. That's right. Okay. And with that, you lost all credibility with me, Seth. I will admit. You said this movie. This movie. It's it's pretty good. Inglorious Bastards is pretty good. Can I make one suggestion? Can we just cast The Rock as one of the best? No, but if you're good, why not? We're doing Jewish screenwriters. Where's Evan Goldberg? Where's Seth Rogen? Jonah Hill, Jason Segel. Where are the boys? Where are my boys at? I will, I will admit... Uh, Jason Segel is the Bastards is very different. It's more Hobbs and Shaw. I'll admit that uh, saying The Rock should be cast in this movie is an absurd thing to say. So if you want to take away my credibility, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Are we ready to move into our final questions or our final segments? Anything else? I don't want to leave any meat on this bone, Brad. This is your baby. I I had a couple of dislikes. They're more like the way you 
kind of get annoyed by things with your siblings than anything else. Like I'll watch this with people and be like, what do you, what do you think? And there's a few moments where I'm like, okay, like <laughs> the, the way that the bastards laugh in that first scene when they're interrogating the Nazi, like oh, sergeant yeah. or whatever. And like, it's just very campy and like, ha, 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 ha. like every time he like points to something I don't know. There's just something about it that I just think is like, makes me kind of roll my eyes a little bit. And I think that's one of those Tarantino flourishes that you were talking about where it's like, I'm going to take this beautiful movie and just kind of like smudge it a few times and like put obviously silly things in there. Uh, yeah. So the Eli Roth, think... sorry to cut you off. Just the, the Eli Roth, Teddy Ballgame stuff, I think is like part of that too, where it's like, did we really need to, like, I don't know if people in the forties talk that way. Exactly. How would you guys like to know that Adam Sandler was originally Eli Roth's character? That would have been interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. That would be really funny, but it also would totally take me out of it. Um, yeah, I had the Bear Jews accent as one of my things that I was like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, oh wait, go, do you want to, I, I want to quickly just phone in on that one aspect of their of that campiness i totally agree with you but going back to what you said before brad about the casting and kind of the one note of the characters i think it's meaning i think there's a an actual strategic meaning behind the way they're acting and everything so a couple i'm going to share with you a few quick stories the battle of bellum wood in world war one was one of the first significant battles the americans fought in and they approached as the French were retreating from a massive German force or a larger German force, and the American reinforcements weren't large enough to help hold them off. So the French tells the American commander that they're retreating, and he responds, retreat? Damn, I just got here. And the Americans stayed, and they fought the Germans off until reinforcements came, and it's now one of the most famous battles in the American Marine Corps. And in World War II, when we landed on Normandy, there was a bunch of people who were being held down. And so one of the, this is one of the highest ranking people that should be in, one of the highest ranking officers in the U.S. to be in a battle throughout the war. He joined the guys on the beach and let us move inland and be killed. And it worked. And like that joke was like, let's get killed inland instead of on the beach. And it worked, and they broke through, and they got through. And the last one I'll leave you is, again, as the Americans were marching towards Germany, one of the outliers was cut off and surrounded by a massive German force. And he was given the usual riot act, we'll kill you, we'll destroy the city, how do you respond? And he responded simply, nuts, exclamation mark. So the idea of American soldiers kind of reacting with this cartoonish or totally off-note response in the face of weird, dire consequences, there is, there is a history or legacy of that. And that actually comes from the British reputation of a bride, of um, the British sense of dry British humor, gallows humor. So I'm just, I'm not saying I just agree with you that it's campy. I'm just saying, I think he's purposely going for that. And the other thing, too, is these aren't American soldiers. These are the bastards. And apparently the spelling has some specific reason to him. 
these are the guys. These aren't the officers. Aldo, the Apache, is an ex bootlegger. I don't know what the hell Bear Jew did before, but I don't think he was holding down like a regular nine to five with like a pension. And apparently the rest of them are all screenwriters from Hollywood. So I don't know what that lifestyle was like, but we're going with this joking around about the, the screenwriters is these weren't, these were the, the bastards to me are monsters. There are monsters and they are more cavalier and gross in a lot of ways about human life and the way they mutilate the bodies. I, the way I look at it is, I hear you, it can't be, it's one note, but to me, it's really kind of showing that the bastards are the villains to the Germans. They're their worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. They're everything. They're everything the Germans are. That, that's what I mean. They, to, they're, I think, supposed to be the antithesis of yeah. the Germans. And I think, so I'm, I'm going too far down this road. I'm going to pull myself back before <laughs> Seth chops my head off. I can see him about to drop that guillotine on me. <laughs> thing that I thought was interesting, like, there's a lot of parallels between Aldo's character and Londa's character. Like, Aldo comes from the Smoky Mountains. Uh, Londa said, oh, they brought me out of the Alps, you know, to do this. There's those moments where they meet each other, and Londa's like, oh, we're not operating with the same level of mutual respect that I thought that we were. He's, like, Londa's legitimately excited to meet uh, Aldo, and Aldo couldn't care less just thinks he's just the worst person in the world and so it is interesting that they do connect those parallels quite a bit yeah i I actually never picked up that i like the parallels but but that is my point is that to the bastards the bastards know what the nazis are and so that's why they're acting like that that's why they're so awful that's why they're so brazen that's why they're so arrogant and just like fuck you and to me i think aldo the reason aldo knows he's better than the shithead because Aldo, uh, to me, I think it is Aldo wins. And so he, I'm getting again too far into it. Seth, I can tell you want to jump no, in here. I, I think you're right about everything. And I also, I think it's also just that scene where uh, Aldo and Lada meet. And, and it's like, <laughs> Lada's like, I thought we were operating under the same sort of uh, respect for each other. And Lada's just like, nope. <laughs> And it's like, it's such an American response too as well. It's it's also such a European thing to just dis- expect somebody to respect you for some reason because you're like a high-ranking German. And it's such an American thing to not give a fuck about that. But it is, it's like, it's this hilarious exchange in the movie, honestly. Um, but yeah, I, I like the dichotomy of both those characters. I'm sorry, I was just going to say that exchange reminds me of a Captain America scene. And it's the same general theme here. It's that they capture Captain America. He says something pithy. And it's the joke there is that arrogance uh, isn't an American trait. But I have to say you do it better than anyone. And that's like a general joke we've seen in other movies before. It's American arrogance. So. Yep. Just wanted to bring that up. Um, are we ready for... Are there any other gripes we want to talk about? Because I have one, but it's... Uh, I think I hit most, I mean, mine mostly are just kind of like minor casting changes and like also the narrative thing where it's like, I wish that Soshana really had a confrontation with Lada at the end of the movie. So that would be my kind of big gripes. I wish there was just a little less goriness to it. Like, I want to watch this with, like, I show this to my wife and I have to be like, because she really doesn't like gory movies, you know, and I have to be like, oh, like, sorry, like, I'll pause it close your oh, fast forward, close your eyes, whatever. Like, I want to watch this with, I don't know, I want to show this to people. 
feel like a weirdo being like, yeah, pretty cool, huh? As they like just scalp somebody within the first, you know, 10 minutes of the movie. And they like show in graphic detail, like what it would look like. Um, so, and I just don't like, I get that that's like Tarantino's style or whatever. My favorite part about this movie are, is the dialogue and just like the back and forth. And I feel like that's like the crowning achievement of this movie. And it's fine. Like I'll pay, I'll watch the, the goriness, but I would probably get more long-term enjoyment out of it if there was less, because I would show it to people and not feel weird. I would like watch it with my kids one day and be like, watch how incredible this scene is. But like, you know, I just feel like that's just overdo it a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I totally agree. The the violence definitely borders on exploitive. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit about this with Mel Gibson, where it's like, where's the line in terms of like, what legitimate violence in your movie for the story and just like overindulging yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's like Tarantino, I mean, crosses that line. (laughs) I mean, he more than straddles it, honestly, throughout his movies. You could, I mean, you could make... uh, you know, bigger claims about, you know, even Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, and Reservoir Dogs. It's like, all of them have extreme violence at certain times. And it's like, at times, I want to say, um, I enjoy that he goes places other directors might be scared to go. And I enjoy that there's like an adult filmmaker out there willing to do those kinds of things. I would also say at times, I think he he just doesn't, it doesn't serve his story at a certain point, And he is overindulging himself. And I think he... Kind of uh, similar to Brian De Palma, kind of in Scarface and stuff like that, where it's like his genius and his problems are so intertwined, it's hard to separate it all. And so it's like, in order to see the genius of that bar scene, you also need to see the gore at the end of it. And it's like, there's no, there's no like sort of taking those two things apart, I guess, at the end of the day. I like that take, Seth, about how you can't kind of extricate what you don't like from what you do, especially with the, those types of artists. Uh, yeah, the violence for me, I'm not screamish by nature, but I'm, I'm definitely getting a little more screamish as I get older. And there are some scenes where I just turned away, especially some of the Stieglitz's murder scenes and some of the scalpings. It's There's just so much, it's gratuitous. And it's almost, I think this is one of the things that's really aged. When he started doing this in the early 90s, we were still in Reagan mode. The world has changed so much in the last 30 years. And now I, I think the violence, it, I don't think it's as necessary as it, as it used to be. Again, I, I don't can't sit here and say I know what he's, exactly what he's trying to say with it and everything. I just think you guys said it better than I did. I think sometimes the violence kind of steps on what he's on his actually his own work. I don't know how you extricate the two, but just looking at this film, you could have gotten rid you could have gotten rid of a lot of the violence because to Brad's point, the thing I love most about it, the things that you keep coming back to, it's not the scene where he stabs someone in the face 10 times with a knife and a pillow. Right. It's the dialogue. It's the way he builds tension. It's, it's not the, oh, granted there, there, there may be some people coming back for it, but I think what makes this movie so special is the dialogue. And I think if he just turned the dial back a little bit, it, it, to Brad's point, I I would be able to see this more often with girlfriends. Well, wives now, but girlfriends in the past. Like this is a movie that, as Brad mentioned, you can't really show to someone with without having a weird conversation. You gotta really know if you're 
you're gonna yeah. show because it's like pretty graphic. When you're laughing at the Teddy baseball scene or having a reaction yeah. that you probably shouldn't have during one of those first scenes, it, it can be weird. So, um, yeah, that was it for me. And so I agree with you. I kind of think I look at this movie as being framed by the carving of the swastika. Mm-hmm. And I think the Shoshana aspect is more of a prologue. Now, that being said, she is the actual, I consider her the protagonist. I'm just saying, like, looking at it structurally, he doesn't treat her as, it's almost she's like a red herring. And she even dresses in red in the the, the film. But I agree, I would have preferred something a little more traditional with her either killing also the other thing is too is they kill hitler by the time the place blows up all she really does is kill the the bastards uh, the way everything unfolds at the end I, I don't like what it i think it made her character a bit redundant or or maybe a better way to say it is kind of stepped on it like it just stepped on the development so it's, it's I, like it's you know they could have they could have even had her kind of meet up with the bastards in some way and then they kind of are like are plotting that thing together at the end but it's like there's sort of like two different narratives happening and they kind of, they kind of pass each other by, but they don't ever like really intertwine the right way. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I'm not gonna like, like Brad said, the dialogue in the movie is amazing. And like, I'm pretty sure it was nominated for a screenwriting award. So it's like, it's not a horrible screenplay. I just think that, I think the payoff would have been better if you have her confront him at the end. I agree. I, I I agree. I think. Are we almost ready for the final question? I think we're getting there. I think I've unloaded most of my takes. Um, I will say I, it's like for Tarantino. I guess um, it's like a genre. I almost kind of wish he would revisit, or like a or like a setting. I almost kind of wish, wish he would revisit because it is really ripe for storytelling, and I think he knows a lot about it more so than the average person kind of thing and so it's like i do sometimes i wonder with him if he'll ever kind of like revisit this setting or like you know revisit the crime world from from dogs and pulp fiction and stuff like or if he's just kind of like off in another direction you hear rumors about star trek movies and shit i hope so i really (laughs) that i would have liked to see that movie i hope he doesn't stop at 10 but I also want to see more movies, uh, specifically within this time frame of World War II. I, I think it'll be fun. Brad, we're uh, we, we're almost I would be satisfied with Tarantino letting people adapt his stories for like television shows, like Netflix series and stuff, like Fargo. Yeah. Like, I would love to see what someone's take is on Pulp Fiction, the show, or <laughs> Inglorious Bastards, the show. And just, I just started watching Fargo, and I love it. It's Fargo's quite, incredible. It's like, one of the best TV shows. Like, every season is different, and it's all different takes on that universe and that tone. I would love it if someone did that with some of these Tarantino movies. So if he stops at 10, maybe that'll be our backup plan to getting more of this content. I think I, like that. I, I, I personally think that 10 things like a red herring to get a lot of people to go to his 10th movie. I don't, like the guy to me, his whole life has been movies and I don't think he's going to stop making them just because he gets to 10, but that's my kind of personal take. 
I hope you're right. Um, all right, I think we're ready to go into not final scores. We're going to do one final question. This is a, the guest question from Brad. Oh, you ready, Brad? Exciting. I'm ready. All right. I'm going to, as the guest, you have the option to choose. Do you want to answer first, last, or middle, Brad? I'll answer first. Um, so the so the question is for the audience to Brad. You have to choose who uh, of the three hosts who each of us would be. Yep. So <laughs> okay. I'll go first. Um, I think my answers are pretty obvious. I don't think I'm going to be the only one to cast Jake as the bear Jew. Oh, you you <laughs> make. Kind soul. <laughs> I just want to see. I want to hear the bat coming down that like cave, and just see Jake with like, you know, that that like very expressive smiley face going walking out. Oh man, terrifying! <laughs> I do have some experience when it comes to hazing. That's all I'll say. That's all I'll Ooh. say. Well, I'm just thinking about like playing high school football against you and like being on the backup offense and defense and having to like play against Jake. It was Jake's a beast. So I think that would be a very uh, formidable uh, bear Jew. I'm blushing over here, you you handsome fellow. I cast Seth and myself in the same scene. Seth. Seth is General Fennec, who, if you don't remember, that's Mike Myers' character, but that's going to be Seth. <laughs> and I'm going to be Churchill. Because <laughs> I want to be able to just take a puff of a cigar and just say, brief him. <laughs> That'll be us. Interesting case. I love it. Seth, uh, you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready. Um... Uh, or do you want me to go? I, I always have you go first. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. go. I'm good. Um, I, I like Brad picks there. Yeah. Those were not expected. Um, I I have Jake in the uh, Aldo, the Brad Pitt role. I think I think I think he'd be good at being like the American trying to do the Italian accent and just like not not getting through it at all. <laughs> um, I have Brad. Uh, I. Uh... I'm, I'm just like blown away right now. You're gonna find a gift basket tomorrow. <laughs> you too, Brad. I'm, I'm just watching over here. I'm sorry, Seth. You go on. You go on. I, I cut you off. I have Brad as the uh, slick and smooth, um, uh, <laughs> the uh, Lieutenant Archie Hickox, the the Fassbender character. I think you'd be good as the uh, <laughs> the British German spy. The, I think you'd have, I think you'd be good in that role, Brad. I like that. Um, All the way down. Oh yeah, well there. Yeah, I'll give you the full Fassbender. <laughs> uh, and then I have myself as Daniel Bruhl. I, I would like to be the sharpshooting uh, Nazi German. <laughs> and I'm into movies, right? That's why I'm into movies. <laughs> Love it. I have a bit of a switch. First of all, thank you guys so much. Couldn't be more flattered right now. Uh, just to dispel any any uh, suspension, of, I I said I probably in my own head would want to think I'm like the Bear Jew or Stieglitz, but I had a little moment of truth. 
I would say I'm probably more like uh, Butts, who is the guy. <laughs> who and what is a butts private is... Butts? <laughs> yeah, private, private Butts who gets uh, who escapes by giving away, betraying his countrymen and getting uh, carved in the face. So I am I am honored that you guys see me high. Well, Brad sees, thinks of me highly. Seth, I you're you're right. My Italian accent sucks. You're I cast you. I cast you as Brad Pitt. Pitt. You should be thanking me. I am thanking you. I am thanking you. Uh, and uh, you've never heard my Italian accent, so. But and it's bad, worse than you think. Uh, it sounds like my Irish one. So for you guys, I have Seth as Archie Hickox. Oh. Film critic. Oh, and a better film. Better film critic than a spy. That's. But that's not a knock against your spine. And the one thing I. Two quick stories. Why. Seth, I would rather be in a bunker with you than Archie Hickox any day of the week. Cool, thank you. So once, once in our youth, uh, we I was in a car with Seth and two of our friends. One of them was a, a young lady who was our age, and the other was, our, was a young friend. Um, we'll call them Kate and Dave, just randomly. Made them pluck those names out of the air. And we were in a habit of stealing bread deliveries from delis in our town because we learned that if you they just left hundreds of dollars worth of bread and donuts outside every deli every morning and ours in the morning yeah just at two from two to five they would just leave bread about and so you to find for us walking home drunk sometimes driving although we had a dd this night the story is we were picked up by a friend and we were hungry or we were going to go throw the pastries at another friend's house. Let's say their name is Schmemann. Uh, but we went to a deli. We, ha- we were in the mi- We were about to pick up the bread when a cop pulled in behind us. And the, it's, it's pretty scary. We're sitting there. I'm a little nervous. Dave in the front seat, is just like pissing bricks. This kid is, it's not good. He's shaking. And I, and Kate gets out and goes to talk to the cop, which first of all, you should never do, but she just jumps out of the car, runs back. Dave is like freaking out up front. I'm looking behind me to see what Kate's doing. And I turn and I'm just hoping Seth can give me something. He can be an anchor in the storm. And I look at Seth staring dead-eyed looking into my eyes like waiting for me to turn around and all he does is slowly bites into one of the stolen croissants <laughs> and he doesn't even respond to what i ask and i just start laughing and i was like i felt totally fine it worked out he got us out of it uh the police let us go we got away with the bread everyone won although dave was a little worse for wear the other story and dave is gonna not appreciate this either, but he doesn't listen to podcast. This is just, yeah. I'm sorry, Schmave, uh, Schmave. Um, <laughs> but so we're on the flight back from Brad. You were on this flight, flight back from spring break, senior year. Oh where so we've all been in. Uh, we've all been in, been on. Yeah, we've all been in bad turbulence, but I've only been on one flight where oh the pilot God. yelled over the airline to everyone strap in, and this was that flight, and. We're all shaking, and I'm sitting between Dave and Seth. And Dave, and I don't blame him, like, girls are crying, like, things like, 
everything's flying out of the like it's shit it, women are yelling babies are crying there are flight attendants running down the aisles it is madness and people are like dave Cavino. i'm sorry i said his last name dave schmavino dave, dave schmavino. we look at each other and it's like i think i'm gonna die like we're both on the verge of tears. Like I don't know. I thought I was keeping it cool. I look at Dave and I'm like, wait, we might die. Like Dave <laughs> makes me think we're gonna die. And then I turn over to Seth again, and again, Seth is just like waiting, magnet lock, looking already looking me in the eye by the time I turn around. And he says something. I'm pretty sure he said this is a bit dramatic. <laughs> and I just lost it again. And I'm like, and then I had a, and then we kind of laughed at Dave, and, and we all kind of calmed down. But uh, so Seth, you're, I would, I want you in my bunker any day of the week. You got, you're, you're cool under pressure. I appreciate that, Bradlino. I thought you were going to say that Seth took a bite of a croissant on the on the flight. That would be too much. He looks you dead in the eyes, takes a bite of a croissant, says nothing. <laughs> Brad, I could tell you the next time I tell that story, that's exactly how it's going to end. <laughs> I wasn't sure if anyone remembered um, that pastry thing. That really was one of the wilder things we ever did, honestly. Uh, no idea what Kate said to the cop, but uh, boy, it's really good to get fresh pastries, though, like before they're available. <laughs> they're still they're hot. delicious. The hard roll, like the New York style hard roll, yeah. and it's still hot. I used to do that but like just take one you know for me to take on my walk home because i was thinking long term like i lived pretty close to a deli which will go unnamed but i used to i used to swing by there and i'm like i don't want to like blow my cover like i want to be able to do this regularly so i would just take one and go about my day we did not learn that moderation trick we uh, we took yeah uh, i honestly at go the back. end of the day you no, I'm pretty sure we house. hit somebody's house yeah. with a lot of them. I'm pretty sure we threw a lot of them in somebody's house. <laughs> I've been told by people recently and in college that our high school antics weren't the cute, funny pranks I thought they were. And they were like borderline misdemeanor. Well, they were straight up misdemeanors. I've heard some of the, some of the, uh, this is probably shouldn't be recorded, so I'm just going to take this offline. But yeah, we got into some trouble as kids, which brings me to Bradlino. The character I chose for you is Zoller. Sniper, a sharpshooter, baby face, but he's got a killer edge to him. He's got, you peel under that niceness, and there's a mean streak in there. And it was so kind of you to mention football, because what I thought about was lacrosse where I would always be put up against you uh, in the, you were the center attack, I was center mid, center defense. And you were a wily one, sir. I can never, I, I, you always got the better of me. You, you put me right there. You, I just always think of you. That was your bird's nest. Put you at the top of the key, feed you. You're a sharpshooter. So obviously you're a much better person than Solar. <laughs> just like Seth's a better film critic than Hickox. But I, 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 I give, I'm giving you Solar. I feel, I feel good about that. And yeah, I feel pretty confident with my butts. I love it. Love it. I appreciate that. Well, look at us. All appreciating each other. Are we ready ready for final scores, gentlemen? Let's what be... is the scoring? Usually, usually it's out of 10. Oh, out of 10. Okay. Yeah, whatever. We, it's flexible. Sometimes we do it out of 10. Sometimes we 
like an eight two. It is an eighty two. Whatever, whatever you want to say. Do uh, I can go first? I feel like I'd let you guys do with everything. You guys, per usual, with Seth, at least now I can say this for you as well, Brad. You you guys took a lot of what I liked about this movie and didn't like and were able to articulate it much better than I could. The violence weared on me a little bit. So coming into this, I, I thought it would be in a mid to high eight. I'm giving it an eight two. And it's really just the violence. It's uh that that's the one thing where it doesn't ruin it for me, but I just feel like there were certain points in the film. The more I see this film, the more the violence sticks out as just being unnecessary. And it's not even if it were one or two scenes, it would be fine. It's just so much of it. And it's uh that's it. I'll get off that sandbox. So that's an eight two for me. And then I want I, I want Seth to go first. I'm gonna give Brad last say. Sure, sure. Um I think, uh, I'm pretty sure it was nominated for a screenplay award. I think the dialogue alone merits it for the screenplay award, even if I don't really like how the plot, like, works itself out at the end. Um, I also think the acting, particularly, like we said, the European actors, Fassbender, Waltz, obviously, winning the Oscar, uh, Brule's really good, Kruger's good, uh, the woman playing Sochan's really good. Um, all the acting, all that acting, I think, is, uh, way above average, um, some of the American actors I had some difficulty with. Um, the cinematography and the camera work, pretty top-notch throughout, honestly. And and the fact that he changes styles seamlessly. Uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of times in his movies, it's more jarring when he switches up his uh, cinematography styles. But in this movie, I found the transition to be really good and kind of dynamic. I think I'm going to land at like a 7.1 is where I'm at. I think there's a lot of good stuff, but it's like there's enough stuff you could be annoyed with that it's like i don't like for me um just within tarantino's body of work i think it's i would still rank them as pulp fiction reservoir dogs once upon a time in hollywood as like his top three so for me this is still kind of like his second tier but obviously i mean between the opening and the bar scene it's two of his best scenes that he's ever done so it's like anyone into tarantino it's kind of like you have to watch this movie 7.1 <laughs> Seth, how much of the 2.9 that you're deducting is from the lack of Dwayne Johnson? <laughs> if The Rock was in this movie, it's an, like, easy, it's an easy 8.5 if you put The Rock in this movie. <laughs> rock bump. The Johnson bump for Seth. Everyone knows that's a sweet spot. So, Brad, it comes to you. You have the final say. This score is forever binding. Legally binding. We're going to carve it into your forehead. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give Inglorious Bastards a 9.7. Ooh, scorching. Love if it. I... If if they could have found a way to work in Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> I just don't get how you do. Um, the violence, like the cartoonish violence, is just like it, it. It doesn't change how I experience the movie, but if it was just more packageable, I would enjoy it more in terms of like lifetime value for me. Because I'd be like watching it with my family. I'd be watching, you know, watching it with my wife all the time. Like, I love the movie. 
I am willing to get through those parts because of how much I love all the dialogue and the way that it's shot and the way that it's filmed. But that's the only thing that I would say. But I just literally, I recently went through my top five movies and the first one that I was like, this is just in there. It wasn't glorious bastards. I just enjoy it so much, such a delight. Um, So it just, it doesn't get much higher than that for me. Love it. Yeah. There you go. I love your love. Passionate about your passion. All right. You got a couple scores there. I don't remember what they all were, but Brad's is winning with a 9 7. And this is, is there anything else we want to say? Or is it, I think it's time to put a bow on this. Put a bow on it. All right. All right. We'll put a bow on it. All right. I'm going to say goodbye, Seth, Brad. Do you want to say goodbye to anyone, the people, loved ones? So long, so shy. Goodbye to people. <laughs> <laughs>